0: I am grateful for uh, drawing our attention today, and in our time of prayer, and we, um, as we pray for one another, and as we um, celebrate this season, it is our prayer, and has been mine, uh, most especially this week, as I've been thinking about uh, you and your family, and I'm grateful that I'm able to. Uh, to recall your faces and to pray for you and give consideration to you and many of you. I know your extended families and uh, been praying for you as you have an opportunity to to minister to them and encourage them and, and point them to Christ. Uh, I hope that you have already been working through our devotional piece. Uh, we're just three days into it today. So if you did not get a copy of, of our devotional piece for uh, this season, this Advent season, I want to encourage you to do that. There are some copies that uh, are still on the table that were to your left right when you came in the, uh, the entrance. Uh, there's some copies there. I want to encourage you, if you don't have one, to pick one up. Uh, and It's not a matter of catching up, but it was designed for 24 days, so it would carry us through. Uh, four weeks from today, uh, as we gather here for Christmas Eve and worship and celebrate together, it would carry us through that day and preparing us for uh, Christmas and preparing us for Advent. So I want to encourage you in that. Uh, if uh, you didn't get a copy, certainly get a copy. Uh, if you have a neighbor or a friend or a co-worker, Uh, that you think, okay, this may be my opportunity to be able to influence them and share the gospel with them during this season. Let me encourage you to pick up the copies. We don't want any of them left. Pick up a copy and just share it with them and give it to them and say, listen, I'm working through this through the course of Christmas. Uh, These are great and encouraging reads. Uh, One a day, take a few minutes and encourage them in that Uh, and hopefully that that would uh, help you begin to uh, develop a relationship with them and open up doors to have gospel conversations with them. So that's the purpose for them. But if you don't have one, we want to encourage you to get it uh, today and and begin reading it. If you have your copies of Scripture, if you will, turn to uh, Isaiah uh, chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. I Make this announcement, uh, some of you may not know, uh, but uh, David and Roderick passed away. Um, his funeral is today at Scotts Hill, or the memorial service is today at Scotts Hill at 3 o'clock. Visitation is at 2. Some of you know David and Connie, and David and Connie have been supporters of Oak Valley and been just really dear uh, to many of us. And in fact, I have said this of David um, I don't know anyone in, in the last 25 years, I don't know of anyone that has been a, a more uh, encouraging person to me. Just personally in ministry, we have a lot of mutual friends and kind of came from similar backgrounds. He's, of course, David was 80, and, and I'm not that old, but I have known him all my life. And he's uh, just been a real encourager. In just in an unassuming way, uh, quiet-spirited, uh, but just always helpful and kind. And uh, Connie has been as well, and they've been strong supporters of us here. And uh, just want to encourage, if you would, to, to pray for Connie as she walks through these days. They've been married since 1965, so uh, life is going to be a whole lot different for her uh, over the course of... Uh, um, the rest of her life. In fact, she told me that yesterday morning when we were communicating. She said, Jimmy said, I he's all I've ever known. And uh, So just uh, incredible testimony there, but if you would pray for Connie. Uh, we are in the beginning of our Advent series today. We start today. And over the course of the next five weeks, uh, today and the four Sundays following, uh, we're going to give attention to Isaiah chapter 11. Uh, We want to look at what it has to say for us during this season. Uh, And along the way, we're going to look at other related texts for sure in Isaiah. Uh, If you've never read Isaiah, let me encourage you to do this. If you've never read Isaiah with the gospel in mind, it is an Old Testament prophet. uh, And there's a lot in there that you may have to kind of wade through and try to figure out some things. And some of it you may not quite understand. But read it in light of the gospel. I did that back here a few years ago uh, as we were uh, getting ready to uh, uh, to work with, a, train another mission team. Uh, we had been there working with our Muslim friends. Uh, oftentimes they are uh, more willing to hear from the Old Testament than they are the New Testament. So we read uh, and worked through Isaiah with the gospel uh, in mind. And I can tell you that it is clear. It is clear crystal clear. Uh, We track along through Isaiah, and you can see God's redemptive plan uh, all through it, and it's so well-defined. And then there's such clear messianic texts. Uh, We look at them particularly during this season, but we we look at them at other times as well. Just think of a few of them with me, if you will. Uh, In chapter 7, we see the sign of a Savior. And uh, you'll remember that text in Isaiah chapter 7. In chapter 9, we read about the character of of the promised Savior. In chapter 61, uh, you look and you see about his mission, and we'll look at part of that this morning, just reference that. Uh, And then in chapter 53, you see the suffering uh, that the Savior endures, the suffering servant, the suffering that he endures uh, to provide the salvation Uh, to provide redemption. And then here in chapter 11, we discover the triumph of the Savior. Uh, So all through Isaiah, we are hearing about the Savior. God is intent on communicating His salvation. It's the reason we looked at Isaiah 45 today because God said, uh, you know, basically, um, you can look to salvation anywhere else, you're not going to find it. I alone am the one who saves. Uh, and, and, and isn't that really good news? Isn't that really good news? We don't have to wonder about where to look and to whom to look. We don't have to wonder about where to go. Uh, I don't know how many of you have ever been out and you're trying to find something, but you first are trying to find some place that actually has what it is that you're looking for. Uh, And you get there and they don't have it. And then they send you somewhere else and you get there and they don't have it. Or you try to improvise, but it doesn't work. Um, We've all done that. Uh, And God just made this most important thing in all of life really, really easy to find. It's found in one person. It's found in him. found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Before we read our text this morning, I want to kind of help give us a little bit of context. I think it'll help us in the, in the course of the next weeks. Um, Isaiah is, begins his prophetic ministry roughly 750 years before Christ. So now think about that, okay? Three-fourths, uh, three-fourths of a millennium. Of a thousand years, 750 years, God is speaking to Isaiah, pointing to Christ. So 750 years before Christ, Isaiah uh, is pointing Israel to him. About 230 years, he's doing this about 230 years before Ezra. And the recordings of Ezra that we heard in those first chapters when Zerubbabel carries that first wave of exiles back. We just, we just dealt with that back here a few years ago. Isaiah is speaking about 230 years before then. And he is pointing to Christ. And all through Ezra and Nehemiah, we kept seeing pictures of Christ and God's salvation and all that he was doing uh, in redemption. What that means is, is that Isaiah comes on the scene calling Israel both the northern and southern kingdom. Because if you remember, Isaiah now is prophesying before Assyria takes down the northern kingdom. He's prophesying before that. The kingdoms are in tight. Now the geopolitical world is is complicated because Assyria is on the rise. By the hand and the providence of God, God is allowing Syria, the Assyrians, he is allowing them to gain force and to gain strength and to gain momentum. And that's what's taking place during this time. And Isaiah is speaking to the northern kingdom and he's also speaking to the southern kingdom and he is telling them along the way what God is going to do. He's telling them well, what God's going to do. And the Assyrians are threatening all the nations. And as I said, they were gaining power and momentum as they marched from city to city and took city after city. I was thinking about that, just looking back at history. It sounds a lot like it was in Europe during World War II when germany was going from city to city and it seemed like in every city that it went to through the larger part of europe the cities would fall and leave would leave it just desolate almost we've seen those those wartime pictures where buildings were crushed and all of that and that is what the scene is here what's interesting in the course of that is that isaiah points back and not using buildings so much as much as he is giving us a look at the landscape as if it were a forest. Um, You've seen those kinds of places that have been clear cut and leave nothing but stumps, and that's the picture that we have. I want us to read chapter 11, and we'll read the whole chapter each week. And that way we can begin to connect these pieces and put them together along the way. But for today, I want us to back up in chapter 10 because I want you to see why 11 looks so hopeful, looks so hopeful. The title of our series is Heaven's Hope, Heaven's Hope. I was thinking about that in light of today and I jotted down, if I had to give a a sermon title, and sometimes I do and sometimes I don't, and you know that, but most of the time I don't. Heaven's hope for today would be distant but certain. Heaven's hope, colon, not this colon, colon, distant but certain, distant but certain. So now let's listen to what Isaiah has to say. Chapter 10, beginning in verse 20. Remember now, chapters 1 through 12, Isaiah is speaking over the course of uh, uh, several years. In other words, what he is dealing with historically is taking place over several years of prophetic work. But 1 through 12, he's dealing specifically with Israel. Uh, He is pointing to them their sin, their struggles. Uh, He points to the judgment of God. He points to the holiness of God. He tells us about his commission and how God has called him to preach this message. Uh, All of this is taking place in chapters 1 through 12 and talking about the redemptive work of God in chapters 1 through 12. But in verse 20 of chapter 10, it picks up and it says, in that day, uh, the remnant of Israel... The remnant of Israel. Did I say that correct? Remnant. Remnant of Israel. And the survivors of the house of Jacob. Will no more lean on him who struck them. But will lean on the Lord. The Holy One of Israel. In truth. A remnant will return. The remnant of Jacob. To the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea. Only a remnant. Of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness, for the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Now, that's kind of a broad, broad sweeping statement in the course of this, but catch that. There'll be a remnant, they'll return, there's going to be destruction, remnant, they'll return. Just catch that. Therefore, thus says the Lord, God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian, at the rock of Orb. And his staff will be over the sea and he'll lift it up as he did in Egypt. And in that day his burden will depart from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck. And the yoke will be broken because of the fat. He's pointing to the fact, now the Assyrians are on the rise. They are afraid of them. So they are looking to the Assyrians for their help and their hope and their salvation. In other words, what they're wanting to do is to make a treaty with the Assyrians to enable them to be preserved. And in the midst of that, what they're going to see is this mighty force, and they're beginning to get fearful. And God's word to uh, to Israel is, don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of them. Because at the end of the day, I'm going to deal with them. I am letting them, I am granting them, I am providing for them this upward move. But when what they are to do has been accomplished, then I'm going to deal with them. That's that's the point. And then we kind of switch now to begin to get some images of what God is going to do. Uh, He has come to Aetha. He's passed through Migron. At Mishmash, he stores his baggage. They've crossed over the pass At Geba, they've lodged for the night. At Ramah, trembles. Gibeah of Saul has fled. Cry aloud, O daughters of Gallim Give attention, O Laisha, O poor Anathoth, and Manamena is in flight, the inhabitants of Gibbon flee for safety. In other words, folks are running, they are afraid. That's the poetic, just a poetic way of how Isaiah now is describing this. This very day he will halt at Na. He'll shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lock the bowels with the terrifying power The great and height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by what he sees or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he, will, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall, be, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that Remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He'll raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt. And will wave his hand over the river and his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. We pray with me. Father, help us in the few minutes that we have to begin to to, to get a a big picture of you, a great God. Father, would you establish that vision, that picture in our minds in such a way that our hearts would be filled with hope. Hope in you. Hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hope in this life, but hope in eternity. And that our vision of you would fuel that hope deep in the crevices of our lives that our faith and our belief and our trust in you would become so overpoweringly strong within us that it would cause us not to fear and not to look in other places, but only to look to you, the holy God, the one in whom alone there is salvation. Grant this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us today to give attention to verses one and two. We'll navigate through the rest of the text uh, in the weeks to come. There, if you're taking notes, if you want an outline, I'm going to give you uh, give you the outline. We're going to look first at devastating conditions, so that's the first thing on the agenda. Then we want to give attention to unexpected hope from uns- from an unsuspected source. Unexpected hope from an unsuspected source. So devastating hope, unexpected hope from an unsuspecting source. And then we want to end with the Spirit of God and the difference He makes. The Spirit of God and the difference He makes. We've already read the text the picture is is that God is laying an axe. God is welding, if you will, an axe, a chainsaw or a timber shear on the f- front of an excavator. He is welding that, and he is He is cutting trees, cutting a huge forest. He's going to use this same instrument, and I use those things because we don't see many people cutting forests with axes anymore. We don't see many people welding cross-cut saws anymore. And now when they're gathering timber, you see very few and hear very few chainsaws. You just hear large pieces of equipment that come in uh, that hold the tree and shear it. Um, once a field behind where I grew up was let grow up in pines. Now, today is back clear cut with no timber and no stumps. All of that has happened within about two weeks, the latter part. They moved in with heavy equipment and they cut all the timber. They ruined trips uh, hunting place he has no place to hunt there. Um, they're not coming to your corn trip. they're not coming. Uh, they've been all run out. The point is it's just kind of a, a, a it's kind of a devastating thing, devastating conditions, but these conditions were brought on by the judgment of God. In other words, Isaiah is pointing ahead to the fact that God is going, to lay bare and lay waste Assyria in the same way that someone would come in and cut a forest and all that would be left are stumps. We've seen places like that. Whether the forest was destroyed because of disease, may have been destroyed by fire, it may have been destroyed by the logging company that comes in and begins to take the timber before the developers come in. Whatever it is, we have seen that. And where stumps are left, eventually those stumps rot. There's no tree, there's no tree there that that is supported by the stump and there is no tree there to help support the stump. And eventually it rots or it is dug up God is judging and is using this as a means to see the instrument of His just judgment. And how often do we see this in the Old Testament? God's people sin. God uses a foreign nation to bring judgment. The, the foreign nation uh, is not looking to God. They are an instrument of God. They're not seeking God. They don't love God. They're not even seeking to be obedient in what it is that's going on. But what they do, they become become haughty. They become mighty in their own mind. And, And they think that they're doing all of this in their own power. And Isaiah is describing Assyria in this way and has described Assyria in this way. And he is saying that God is going to lay them waste. Lay them waste. I want you to remember that Isaiah is a prophesying about what is yet to take place. So he can't see it except that God has shown it to him. And he is even now at this time, he is somewhere about 40 to 50 years before Assyria will really take hold and take out the northern kingdom. Remember in 722 BC, the Assyrians come in, They lay siege to the city of Samaria, which is the capital of the northern kingdom. uh, And that group of people are either killed or they're taken away into exile. Isaiah is prophesying even before this. And he is saying, don't look to Assyria for your salvation. Don't look to Egypt for your salvation. Do not look anywhere for help, but turn to God. Turn to God. To him. The Assyrians are on the rise. They're not on the decline. They're gaining power and prominence. But Isaiah is reminding Israel, especially the southern kingdom here, that Assyria will ultimately be devastated. I was thinking about that, just in hearing that and looking at it in our context. In, in the world today, There are all kinds of treaties and stuff that are being established and formed. And there is an idea of seeking peace at whatever cost so that we can be preserved, so that our economy can be preserved, so that our nations can be saved. And if if Isaiah were proclaiming that today, he would be saying the same things to us, is look to God. Don't look to leaguing up, connecting with others who are not of God for your salvation because salvation is only in God. Worldly powers are always and constantly subject to the hand of God. Don't forget that. Hamas is subject to the hand of God. Russia is subject to the hand of God. China is subject to the hand of God. North Korea is subject to the hand of God. The United States is subject to the hand of Of God. No matter how vile, no matter how dangerous, no matter how much someone hates us or hates others, every nation and every person is subject to the hand of God. Isaiah is mentioning this because at this time, Ahaz, again as I've mentioned, is trying to look to Assyria as a source of help and protection, looking for a treaty with them. And there's a lesson here for us. Nothing in this world will save us. I know we hear that and it sounds kind of a but listen to that specifically. Nothing in this world. save us. I attended a funeral yesterday and uh, Janice's first cousin and we were, after the funeral, I was catching up with some of her first cousins that I haven't seen in years and and we were just sitting and talking and talking about mutual friends and and one of us had a mutual friend who we we, we both, we worked with them at various times, but uh, this friend, his security, his hope, and his assurance rest in his personal possessions at the time he had a literally had a brand new pickup for every day of the week sounds kind of kind of sounds kind of neat doesn't it man have a brand new pickup for every day of the week. You just go out there and and get in it. And and then whenever he would trade, he would, in a cycle where he would trade them and and rotate them around. But it was constantly, he had one for every day of the week and he drove it on that day of the week. well, man, that's great. Well, it was great until it couldn't be sustained. And when it couldn't be sustained, you know what he did? He took a gun and he took his life. Sounds sad, doesn't it? Well, the same is true for us. The same is true for all of us if we are looking somewhere else for salvation. If we are looking to something in the world that we think will feed us, encourage us, help us, make it through this life. And Isaiah was saying nothing in this world will save us and that every thing in this world is ultimately subject to God. And that's true of you. And if you're here today, not knowing Christ, understand that it does not remove you from the authority of God, nor does it mean that somehow you will move through this life and into eternity unscathed as if you are not subject to God. We all are. We all are. In fact, part of our coming to trusting God and trusting in the saving work of Christ is acknowledging I am subject to God. He is the one who has salvation. I'm subject to Him. Therefore, I look to Him for those things. That's what Isaiah was declaring, that's what he was trying uh, to help them understand. Uh, In the course of this lesson, there's nothing in this world that will save us, and nothing can. Uh, I don't know if you've heard these things or not, but I have over the course of years. Uh, Isaiah 11 has often been misunderstood and been misinterpreted. There are a lot of passages of Scripture that way, but particularly Isaiah Isaiah 11. Um, There have been those who believe that Isaiah 11 is talking about the United States, uh, that that we are a peaceable nation, and that that is what Isaiah was talking about. In fact, there were portraits that have been drawn of a peaceable nation reflecting on the United States and, and seeing, the, seeing the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the kind of the inspiration for this coming out of Isaiah uh, 11. And there are some who have looked at Isaiah 11 and have seen the, the, the socioeconomic injustices. And they have looked at Isaiah 11 and said that uh, it is talking about uh, looking for a political leader that will come and step in and will write all of this. In other words, that will make the corrections in all of this, that will, that will make everything right again economically. I don't think any of us around here were back here in 1928, but... For those who, uh, those who uh, enjoy a little bit of U.S. history, anybody remember what took place in 1928, 1929? The, the stock market crash. The stock market crash took place in 1929. And there was that Black Tuesday. And there was a man by the name of Huey Long who, from Louisiana who had political aspirations that came up during that time and he campaigned on the fact that he was the politician and the political leader that would save Louisiana and save its economy in the midst of everything that came after the crash of the stock market. And you know what? He campaigned pretty well. People bought into it. They looked to him as their savior. You know what happened to him in 1935? He was preparing to make a run uh, for the presidency of the United States and he was assassinated. I don't relish in that other than he was not the savior of the people. All those things that present themselves, even people, Ultimately wind up destroyed. I want you to notice also here in verse 1 it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Isaiah is prophesying regarding the destruction of Assyria. He has already stated that God has laid waste and all there is are the stumps. Just a vast forest of nothing but stumps. But notice what he says there in verse 1. There shall come forth from a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Notice not only is he prophesying the destruction of Assyria... But he is also prophesying the destruction of Israel. There is this tree that is there that is marked with Jesse's name on it. And it is no longer a tree. He was saying and is saying that there is going to be the devastation of Israel And your kings and those who have led you from Jesse will no longer lead you. They are not your savior. They can't help you. They have already proven that because even Ahaz from the root, the stump of Jesse, when he's gone, that will end it and there will be left there a stump. They'll be left there a stump. Notice that Assyria is going to be devastated, Israel is going to be devastated, the Davidic rule is going to be devastated. Even those who seemingly were to carry on the succession of David and reign over Israel, they were going to be cut down to the stump. What does that help us understand? that none of us, again, are outside of the subject of God. They were unfaithful to God, and so God was going to deal with them according to their unfaithfulness. It didn't mean that there would be no grace, but it meant that there would be the judgment of God on them. And then he gives this word of hope. And notice what his word of hope is. Then a shoot will spring forth, will come up from the stump of Jesse. A branch from its roots shall bear fruit. I thought about this question. I'm not the only one that has asked it, but when I was reading it, and I've read it before, I'm wondering, why does he reference the stump of Jesse? Why didn't he just say the Davidic throne? I mean, there's power in that because it draws us back to the promise that God had made David. Takes us back there, but that is not how the Holy Spirit spoke through Isaiah to make this word about the stump of Jesse. He points back to the stump of Jesse. Why? I think there are at least three reasons. First, it was to point back to the unsuspecting source of hope. In other words, hope was grounded in simple beginnings and in unexpected places. I want you to think about that. Simple beginnings and unexpected places. Remember in 1 Samuel chapter 16? Samuel is commissioned by God to go to Jesse's house to anoint a king. That's what he's commissioned to do. God told him to go to Jesse's house in Bethlehem there in that region to go there to anoint a king. And this is no small matter. So he went to Jesse's house. And by all accounts, remember Jesse was not a political leader. I was reading some stuff on John F. Kennedy the other day and the Kennedy family. The kind of family that intrigued me and and, and how they were rich and powerful. And Joe Kennedy had set up and established that, that Joe Jr. was going to be the president, is going to be the one to carry on and was going to lead. And, of course, he is, uh, uh, he is killed, and then it falls to the next in line, and, and that was John Kennedy, who was a weak man, weak physically, was not well physically. But the, the point being is that this is not the kind of man that God is sending Samuel to. He's sending him to someone who is not known other than that God points him out and says, go to his house. Jesse wasn't a political leader. He had not set out to raise up kings. That was not part of what he had. He had eight sons. You know what they did? They herded sheep. That's what they were. They were sheep herders. Jesse was from Bethlehem, Bethlehem, kind of of an unknown city. It wasn't wasn't Washington, D.C., okay? It it wasn't the place where political leaders are going to become the political leaders that they're going to become. That wasn't the place. It was like going to uh, Salemburg, North Carolina, of all places, to, to look for your president. Most of you don't even know where Salemburg is. That's the reason. That's the point. the, The National University wasn't in Bethlehem. It wasn't where future political leaders were being groomed. In fact, the prophet Micah said this to us about Bethlehem. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for you shall come forth for me One who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Pointing to the fact that this insignificant, lowly place would be the place that this branch that is being spoken of by the prophet Isaiah would come from. Just as David had come from an unsuspecting source, Jesus was going to come from an unsuspecting source. David had come from Jesse. You, you remember whose Jesse's lineage was? If you read the book of Ruth, you find out. Jesse's grandmother was Ruth the Moabite. That was Jesse's grandmother. Who was widowed trusted the Lord in the midst of all of those circumstances, returned back to Israel with her mother-in-law, Naomi, they come back and by God's providence, they meet and come to Boaz, who is that family, Naomi's family, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, his family's kinsman-redeemer. In other words, he is the one that if there is someone who dies and leaves behind uh, a a wife that, that, that has no children, they in turn then will marry them so that that family name will be carried on and so that their progeny would serve as witness and testimony of the one who had passed away. They come in contact with Boaz. Boaz marries Ruth. They have a son whose name was Obed, who was Jesse's father, who was David's father. Unsuspecting, unsuspecting that from this relationship, from this relationship, from this insignificant weakness if you will that all of this would come about turn with me if you would to 1 Corinthians just a moment I was reminded of this when I was studying this text how does that relate how does that relate to what God has done for us in Christ in an unsuspecting way one who would also be born in Bethlehem, one who would also have an earthly father that was insignificant, one who would also have a mother who was insignificant, someone unknown by anyone other than God. Look in verse 26 of chapter 1. For consider your calling, brothers, Paul writes. But many of you were wise according to worldly standards, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. In other words, that no one would come into the presence of God. Isaiah's point in pointing back to Jesse and even Jesse being the father of David is that Jesse is nothing apart from God. David is nothing apart from God. Even when he is anointed king by Samuel, he is nothing more than an insignificant shepherd boy who has nothing to bring to the table except for God. Hope ultimately would come to be established in the context of a covenant with someone who is nothing apart from God and is only who he is and able to do what he does because God has singled him out and said, in you, in you, this take place I believe that's the reason that Isaiah under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit points to this stump of Jesse and there is this branch now that is going to grow from this stump it is the only stump that has a branch that comes from it you get that The rest of the stumps are laid waste, roots die, rot gone. Assyria will never be a world power, still isn't, not a world power that will stand against Israel. That was God's point. I'm doing that work. And yet, with this one single stump, not a whole lot of stumps, but one single stump, there would be one branch that would come from that stump. In other words, that stump would not die. Its roots would stay alive. But God would bring one branch from that stump that would ultimately be the hope of Israel and the hope of the world. We'll look at that in the weeks to come from this text. But that is the point. But it's also because he says Jesse stump he's also saying God has not forgotten his promise and his covenant with David turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7 Look at verse 12. This is God through the prophet Nathan speaking to David. David desires to build God a house. God declines the offer but acknowledges the desire. And then he says this. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now hear that. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And when God says forever, he means forever, okay? Forever. Forever. I'll be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I'll discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. What he's done now is getting ready to do in Assyria. That's what Isaiah was pointing to. God's fulfilling every aspect of this promise. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from me before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all the vision, Nathan spoke to David. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from its roots, and it shall bear fruit. You should think about this for just a moment as we close. Hope comes from unsuspecting sources. God does not work the way we work. We see no place in the course of Scripture in the way with Christ Anything about his life that would point to other, and I say, and this is huge. What I'm getting ready to say, but you have to, you have to understand that his righteousness. He's from heaven, but that was a long time coming to be acknowledged. In other words, that was something that was revealed. It was revealed to Peter because Peter there at Caesarea Philippi said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In other words, you are from heaven. You are from God. What others could not see, the Spirit of God enabled Peter to be able to see. The point is is that Jesus did not come as one coming from a great university, one who had been trained uh, and formed and shaped for uh, all of this political power. He wasn't shaped and formed in a way that folks saw him as a great military threat. None of those things. He came in simplicity. He came in the midst of night. He came with little to no attention other than the attention of angels drawing Various ones to come to him. What's the point? What's the point? The point is, is that in the midst of all of this weakness, we have God manifesting himself and showing himself to us, the one that would bring hope, hope for our sin and hope for life. That's the point. A branch coming from a stump. I was working through this text my mind was taken to the crucifixion and the resurrection jesus is crucified died with everyone else there would have been no life and yet out of the grave came forth again This branch coming off of what seems to be a dead stump. And yet he comes to life to rule and to reign. Remember what he told his disciples? He said, all authority has been given to me. Hope from an unsuspecting source in an unsuspecting place. And then there is the Spirit of God and the difference He makes. Look at verse 2, and we're going to go into... We'll, we'll, we'll dig into this next week. But hear this. and The Spirit, the Lord, shall rest upon Him. So now this branch is no longer a branch, but is a Him. This branch is a person. And this person... The Spirit of God will rest upon, and here is what happens in the midst of that. Look at it. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That is the difference that that makes. Now turn to Isaiah 61. spirit of god upon him we'll look at his character and what that makes him next week but notice in 61 how the spirit of god resting upon him now shapes his mission and what he is about the spirit of the lord god is upon me because the lord has anointed me that they may be called oaks of righteousness. In other words, the Spirit of God has come upon me that I would work righteousness into the lives of those who are unrighteous. And I will give strength for salvation to those who in and of themselves are weak and unable to provide salvation they shall build up the ancient ruins they shall raise up former devastations they shall repair the ruined cities and the devastations of many generations now turn to Luke chapter 4 Luke chapter 4 and I want you to picture this now almost Almost 800 years from when Isaiah prophesies. Now, between 750 and 800 years later, Jesus stands in a synagogue. A simple place of teaching where people were gathered. And he came to Nazareth. Again, a lowly place. This is not Jerusalem where he had been brought up and as was his custom he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written and what did he read? The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor to bring hope He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes there in the synagogue were fixed on him. And then he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Hope, distant, but certain. 800 years, no one sits on that throne for 500 years. Half a century, half a millennium, 500 years, half a millennium. And then comes hope. Why do I mention that today? Is because hope is here now. Christ has come. We sang about his coming this morning. Ask again that God would send him. But you know, there are only, there's only one group of people that can joyfully ask for the Lord's return. No one else should be asking for his return. Because there was return, if you are apart from Christ, will be certain judgment for all eternity. And everything in your life looks like, in reality, a forest that has been completely devastated, cut down. Axe chopped down and laid bare and there is no life. But there is hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. To give life. Let's pray together. Father, we ask earlier that you would help us see and gain a vision for you, a great God, a big God. And that from it, Father, that you would press that deep within us that our faith and our trust in you would look to you for salvation and declare your praise because you are good. We appeal to you again now. Grant it by your grace. Thank you for the branch. Thank you for the hope. And even now, Father, as we wait for the completion of that hope, Grant us faith and strength to hold on and persevere, though it may be distant. Help us, Father, to know without question that it is certain, certain in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.